So today in the reading corner, I know listeners are going to be very excited because I'm really pleased to be welcoming Sarah Pennypacker, who's joining me from her Cape Cod uh, residence to talk about the much anticipated PAX journey home. Sarah, I can't tell you how much people have been looking forward to and anticipating a sequel to PAX. So welcome into the reading corner. Thank you. Don't you love it that that books join us across an ocean? I think this story is mm. a universal story mm-hmm. and it tra- it can travel across the world and mean something to everybody. I think that's one of my favorite things is knowing that kids around the world are reading the same story, having the same reactions and the same questions. Do you know mm. how many languages it's been translated into? Oh, this isn't exact, but I believe it's 26, 27, something like that, something quite large. So before we get into Pax Journey Home, I think it'd be nice for listeners just to very briefly refresh their memory about where we left Pax and Peter at the end of the first book. Sure, sure. You know that they were separated through most of the book through the war, um, and Peter felt a lot of guilt over that. Um, And at the very, very end, they come together, and Pax kind of calls him, needing him at that time, and Peter responds. And then he sees at the very, just as he's so happy to have Pax back, he sees that Pax is rebuilding a life and Pax has a family. And he does what he feels is the right thing, which he tries to send Pax away. And I very specifically end the book there with Peter's action and not Pax's reaction, because I felt the book is about hard things. And uh, if you are a young reader, you've put a lot of heart into this. And so I wanted the young reader to be able to feel that Pax could have turned around and said, nope, I'm not leaving you or he could have gone off with with his new family. So, and for that reason, I was absolutely certain I would not write a sequel. (laughs) But you did. So what made you change your mind? I guess I would have to say it's kids' reactions. Of course, I got a million letters saying, I I have to know, and here's what I think. And one day, my agent got a letter by accident asking that question. So he called me up and said, oh, my goodness, this reader really needs to know. And I laughed and I said, oh, Stephen, you, you don't see my fan mail. They all want to know. And then I made a mistake and I said, of course, I know what happens. And I started to tell him. And it was in such detail because I'm a reader, too, and I wanted to know. And I made up a whole thing that happened a year later, which is now a book. And as we were talking about it, we both realized, oh, you have a new book. Or or at least you have plot and characters for a new book. And I quickly figured out, I still have some things to talk about. And we're going to talk about those too. Mm -hmm. Now, what's really interesting is I think there's a difference between you having told, you know, if you told the readers at the end of book one, it's quite a difference to leaving that to book two because you allow that space regardless Mm -hmm. of whether you have a sequel or not. When they finish that first book, they've got that space to do that thinking. So I applaud that decision to leave it at that point. Um, And then as we come to uh, Pac's journey home, we immediately get some resolution because it starts with Pax's story. And it's such a joyful 
opening uh, to this book. Can you just tell us a little bit about the first chapter? Sure. The first chapter, you're right, is all joy. It's just, for me, it's heart-pounding acceptance of life. We hear Pax being in the world, and he's responding not just to the joy of life, but it's spring. And I think I have a sentence that says, everything is screaming up, up, the buds, the burrows, the, everything's going up. And the only response to up was go. And so we know he's really alive in the world. Um, and then a page later, we find out not only is he alive in the world, but he's bringing new life into the world. His mate, Bristle, is about to have kids, and he is exploding with joy. In fact, he runs through the sheer joy of it. And although I'm skipping ahead quite a lot, you know, I was aware of the patterning in your text. And there's a, a part of the story, I'm not going to say what's happening in the plot, but he runs again. And this time he runs because if he didn't, his heart would be shredded. Was that a deliberate patterning going on there? Yes, I waited all that time. There were other times in the book I could have started with Pax Ran, many other chapters, but I waited for that one because that was so, I felt moving. The emotion is so intense at both of those points in the story. And I think by being economical and holding back, you allow that intensity of emotion. It's obviously still moving you as a writer. That in itself is very moving for me. Um, We're going to come on to the second chapter because we know it's a story. Things can't be in this sort of halcyon wonder throughout. And the next chapter, it's, it's again this alternating perspective and we've got Peter's chapter perhaps just set that up for us a little bit and I know you're going to read part of this chapter for us I'd like to do that because something very important for me is how to um, well first I want to say that uh, we have a a thing called theme of course Um, Mm. and theme has always felt a little too lofty or erudite or too um, I don't know rigid for me so I prefer a writer friend of mine called it the aboutness of his books Mm. and I that suits me better so the book has to be about something overall this book is about healing the first book was about some destruction some things that happen to be questioned. Um, so overall, this book is about healing. And Peter is in terrible, terrible trouble one year later. He does not have the same response to life that Pax has. So um, this is a book where I want to hint in his opening chapter what he wants, that he knows he wants, what Peter doesn't know he wants, but he wants, and just how much trouble he's in. And mm-hmm. some themes like how boys become men and how sometimes that difficult that can be. I had read in the interim between the two books some really scary statistics about boys and how uh, we have many more suicides among boys than girls of a certain age um, and how uh, their mental health is in trouble, basically because we're still not allowing boys to have a full range of human experience, we're still telling them to reject anything we call feminine. Don't be nurturing, don't be kind, don't be, or or don't be, uh, don't let your emotions rule you. And that's a very tough thing to be told over and over that part of yourself is to be rejected, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I did want to touch on that. So yeah, should I start just start reading this and you can 
get an idea of what's going on through action and character, of course, through what's going on. Peter crouched over the offending floorboard. Vola had said the boards were flat enough he could begin sanding, but he wanted them perfect when she saw the floor finished, not just flat enough. He adjusted the wheel of the plane until the blade projected only enough to shave off veneers, thin as paper. He could make a single thicker cut, but layer by layer would do a better job. Peter liked planing, maybe best of all the skills he'd learned building the cabin. The plane was a real muscle tool, not like a screwdriver, say. You used your whole body with a plane, a tool for a man, not a boy. He positioned it over the end of the board, wrapped his right hand over the knob, and eased his weight onto it, then began to guide the plane forward with his left. The hundred-year-old yellow pine, salvaged from a neighbor's barn, sheared off in an even curl that smelled as crisp as fresh-cut wood. He liked how wood was always ready to start over and how suddenly the plane stubbed up short against a knot. Peter's pushing hand shot off the knob and he skinned the pad of his palm. He fell back on his heels, cursing. When was he going to learn? That was how knots were, sneaky, hiding under the surface. As the blood welled up and began to trickle down his wrist, the phrase struck him, blood and sweat. He had dropped buckets of sweat all over this cabin. A little blood signature wouldn't be out of place. He pressed the cut to the board and watched a red flame leak out. The spreading stain looked like a fox's tail. Peter jerked his hand back, shocked at how hard the memory hit. Last year, on his journey back to the place where he'd been forced to abandon his pet fox, Pax, he'd nicked his calf so that he could smear a foxtail blood oath on his leg. I will come back for you, it vowed. He pressed the wound to his chest. Memories were so treacherous. He knew what he had to do to counteract this one, kind of a penance he'd devised. Every time he slipped up like this and thought about Pax, he made himself go through the same exercise. Best to do it right away. He closed his eyes. He visualized the afternoon when he'd found a dead vixen by the side of the road. He went over all his steps in detail, picking up her stiff, muddy body, carrying it away in search of a place to bury it, noticing the sandy spot beside a stone wall and scraping out a shallow grave with his boot. Although his chest was tightening the way it always did at this part, he made himself remember finding the opening to the fox den. It hurt to breathe now, but he drew up the scene again. Three dead kits and one shivering survivor. He had reached in and lifted the live kit, a male, a little dog fox. He'd curled it against his chest where it had filled a hollowness he hadn't known he was carrying. But now for the penance, he spliced in a different scene. The thing his dad told him he should have done. It was meant to die with the rest of its family. The right thing to do would have been to make that painless. Holding the kit, Peter had been outraged. Too late, he'd cried, and I'm keeping him. His father had been irritated, but in his expression, for the first time maybe, Peter had seen respect. Now he could see that his father had been right. He should have put Pax out of his misery and out of the pain. He himself would cause them both five years later. He finished the penance, no reaching in. Instead, he imagined himself resting off one of the heavy capstones from the top of the wall and dropping it over the entrance to the den and then immediately walking away without ever looking back. Do it. Walk away. Don't look back. 
all that pain he would have avoided. And then I'm going to skip a couple of pages where he's just talking about building the cabin, which shows us that he's really making a home. He would like a home. Um, and as he's doing so, Vola shows up. She stepped up onto the cinder block he'd placed at the doorway for her. She got around really well on her prosthetic leg, but tall steps were awkward and knocked on a log. Peter liked that she respected his space. He spread a tarp to hide the unfinished floor and then waved her in. How did it go today? Vola smiled. That little Williams girl is going to drive me nuts, but she's got a feel for the marionettes. B says hello. She ordered that new book on trees you wanted. Oh, and I almost forgot. Someone put up a sign on a bulletin board. Puppies, lab and spaniel were in the mix. I was thinking Peter's breath went shallow. He turned away. No. Now Pax was in his head again. He picked up the trowel. I have to get back to work. I was thinking maybe a little company when you start spending time out here. No. The sharpness of his voice surprised him. Vola stepped back. All right. It is too soon. I understand. Peter doubted that Vola did understand, since he didn't understand himself. All he knew was that the idea of having a pet again made it hard to breathe. She smiled a conciliatory smile. Peter nodded and slapped a load of slurry onto the log wall. He wished she would leave. He had to run the penance again, or the memory would grow roots. He smoothed the slurry along the wall, sealing the chink. Vola's smile faded. I told you yesterday, don't seal it up so tight. Peter bit his cheek and spread on another thick band of chinking. Keep out the cold. You'll keep out the air and the light. He stuffed the chinking deep into the gap. People die without light and air, boy, Vola said in a quieter voice. I know, he said without looking up. People die from the cold, too. The physicality of what's going on is mirroring the psychological as well. It certainly is, yes. Tell me a little bit about how that came together for you. Was it quite instinctive or did you have to work at that? It is work, but I'm a novel nerd and I love how, yes, you do have to work to make everything do double duty. He is not going to build something that I am not going to use. He's not going to be building, he's building a home. We're talking about making a home again. And he is not hammering uh, shingles on. He is sealing up the cracks. And that came from, I'm sure you know, Leonard Cohen's part of, his song anthem is there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in and as this is a book about healing I felt it was right to talk about cracks and slivers and how the place that is wounded that seems to you to be vulnerable seal it up is actually the place that it will come in so as a writer I like nothing more than to say oh I nailed it he will be sealing the cracks in his log cabin to keep out everything, even the things that will heal him and make him full of life. Mm. And a book that's written with that richness allows you to go back and reread it. Mm. And things that may have bypassed you on the first reading, they acquire even more significance when you reread them. I, I think you're absolutely right. And believe it or not, it's for the author as well. I can be reading my book over and over and finally I'll go, holy mackerel, I'm talking about this all the way through and not have really seen it. I want to talk a bit about Vola. 
and her change from the first novel. I mean, it's not exactly turned on its head, but she was the one that needed healing. Yes. In the first yes. book. Yeah, I love Vola. I didn't, I was kind of using her in the first book as a mentor figure, but halfway through, she just stole my heart. So I, I gave her more backstory. Vola is uh, really important to a novelist because, of course, we have things to say. And as authors, being adults and being caring about children, the things we want to say, I, I never want it to be proselytizing. I never want to send a message, but I found it really helpful if a mentor character can say something that is important and that will guide the child character, but she or he has to come to it from their own background. They have to legitimately believe this thing. Otherwise, it's proselytizing. So she is very important. And yeah, I'm glad you see how healed she is. And you know who healed her is Peter. Peter, at the very end of the first book, he said, you are going to go do this thing. I'm holding you accountable. And it turns out she did it. And what changes? She's she's really come a long way. There are lots of other things uh, as well as healing that the book uh, deals with. Um, water is a huge, important part of this story. And you build quite a lot of anticipation early on. You know, as a reader, we're expecting something bad to happen. So tell us a little bit about the water. I knew during the first book that the war had to be about something universal because I had said it such, such that anyone in the world could read this book and say, mm, this could happen here. So water is a universal need. And it's actually something that I think that, sadly, I think we will come to war over water because it is that important. But also that I felt you could make several cases about it. You could be, uh, you could want to conserve the water. You could want to give the water. You could want to use the water. There are a lot of things. And then luckily there it was for the second book as this is how I'm going to represent what war can do to the earth is through the water. Because isn't it true Mm -hmm. when our countries go to war, they often destroy the thing they're trying to capture. So I thought it made sense that the war, that the water would suffer from people trying to control it. And, you know, I don't, I don't like the idea, of course, of themes and proselytizing, as I've said, but I do think it's a very important job of books is to raise questions. Um, I think I'm attributing this correctly to the poet W.S. Merwin, who said that questions are more interesting than answers and questions unite us and answers divide us. So therefore, I like to think of the books as opening up questions and allowing the readers some prompts for how to go about thinking about their own answers. Since Pax was published, I think we've learned a lot more about trees. And I can see some of your excitement about that new research Yes. trees being fed into the book as well. Yes, I had just finished. Oh, Peter, I can't remember his Peter name. Peter Wallenbaum. Yes, I had just finished his <laughs> book, The Hidden Life of Trees. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I was so moved by that. And of course, as a novelist, I'm always thinking metaphorically too. So even as I'm just blown away by the wonderful things I'm learning about trees, I was thinking, Peter would be very interested in these trees who do it all without hugging, without, you know, really touching, connecting, but they get what they need. So I was already thinking metaphorically Mm. about that book. 
which takes us on to sort of love and relationships. Obviously, this is very much tied in with healing, but there's a lot coming through in the relationship with Jade about kindness. And he sees kindness as something that's going to bring pain. He actually sees love as something that's going to bring pain. Yes. And perhaps it has to. First of all, there is, yes, if you're going to allow yourself to love, there, there's the possibility of pain. Here you go, though. This poor young man lost a mother early on, replaced her in some ways, some emotional ways with packs, lost packs, had to give up packs. And then in the, this interim year, lost a father. So I could not let my book be saying to kids who might have had this kind of loss, you are wrong to reject love. You are wrong to close off. I have to be saying this makes sense to someone who has lost so much. Seal it up, right? So that was that was one thing. But then the other thing was an opportunity again to say, okay, so he's had this love from his mother, a female character who had no problem showing it. And his dad and his grandfather, when his dad was still alive, just could not do that. So he doesn't have a male role model encouraging him yet. He doesn't have that yet. I mean, the grandfather is a victim of this too. Yes. Yes, he is. That was culturally, it's going down each generation in Peter's family. And I think, you know, around the world, each generation has become less rigid in that kind of male stoicism. So that made sense that Peter's father, without giving too much away, we learn a little bit of something that happened to him during that year that kind of changed him a Mm. bit too. That idea of being passed through generations, I think was cemented for me with the photographs on the mantelpiece. That's why I put them in. And I think it's uh, it's not that much that I I was that good at hiding it. I think it's Mm. that it happened to be the plot was kind of compelling. The plot, Mm. we are really, really invested in what is going to happen to Pax, what is going to happen to Peter. They're both on journeys and they're kind of uh, fraught with different dangers. Mm. So I think that allowed me to get away with slipping in that many little emotional kind of touchstones. I could slip them in because you're going to read the next page anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to uh, just ask a question that is not specific to this book. It it crosses both. And that's to do with your decisions around having the alternating voices. Obviously, there's an obvious reason because they're apart from each other. But then the kind of way in which you found the voice for Pax the Fox in particular, and indeed the voice for Peter. In early, early, the very first draft of Pax, there was no Peter. There was a boy, but he was referred to. He did not have his own chapters. The scope of the book widened. First, it was just going to be about the effects of war on this certain animal. But as I wanted to talk more about kids, the effect of war on kids, um, I realized that there was so much more I could do with the verbalization that a child character do. So I added him. But then the really big change that happened was I was always going to use Pax to tell this story, use Pax. Once I had Peter, who was able to tell so much of the story, 
I looked at what I was doing with this fox character and, and I said, you know what, you're, you're using animals in a way that I think we shouldn't use animals. We should respect them more. And so I went through and I gave Pax his own motivation, his own character. He wasn't just a fox. He was Pax. And in fact, by the time I finished the first book, and certainly I was ready there with the sequel, I knew him well, and I knew that he had motives. And I actually, I built him as a human in terms of motive and response, not in terms of action, as a human who did not self-reflect and had no neuroses. So Pax never goes back and says, oh, I wonder if I did that right, or how does anyone view me? Am I going to be thought of as this or that? No neuroses, no introspection. They just feel what they feel, they do what they do, but they feel. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm quite sure that that's true. You know, I did work with a Red Fox expert to build the first book. And not only did he, you know, answer all my questions, but at the very end, he reread the book and, for me and gave me the go ahead and said, all these things, you are within what we know about Red Fox behavior. Mm, wonderful. Yeah. You've probably said this before somewhere, but I don't think I, I don't think I've read it. But Pax is, must be taken from peace. Pace, peace. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So a truly wonderful book, Sarah. I'm guessing that this is the end now. It you know, feels I, like a. Feels I'm glad you see that because I think it should be quite clear that we have set all the characters that we care about are now set on paths that feel healthy and just full of life to come that we don't have to worry about. Mm -hmm. So no, I am with you. I am saying quite firmly, this resolves. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Sarah. Thank you so much. It was a joy. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.